Well, this piece of news started over in your neck of the woods over at Amazon. They're looking to discontinue celebrity voices for their lady cylinders. Even if you paid for them, if you bought them, if you bought Samuel L. Jackson's voice for your lady tube, they're taking it out. In the next few months, they're going to pull them. I can't even imagine Home Assistant doing this kind of thing with their year of the voice, like somehow retroactively pulling Popey's voice out of the <laughs> no. <laughs> out of the system, you know? I want my Popey forever. This is what made me think of it. Just as Home Assistant is doing the year of voice, it seems that Amazon is undercutting and underfunding their smart assistant division. All the celebrity voices are going away. No real reason has been given. If you want to go through the rigmarole of going to support and asking them for a refund, they'll do it for you. But they can't be bothered to automatically credit your account because there's just no way they could know. How could they? <laughs> How could they know? You know, <laughs> and then, you know, I heard this, Alex, and I thought there is this kind of reoccurring theme that we see, especially with Amazon and these others. Uh, Google also just announced that they are discontinuing integration with many of the to do services out there, like any do and others for Google Assistant. They're just turning off the API access. You know, they're not really going to do that anymore. So if you use the Google Assistant to add to do's to your list you're not going to do that anymore you can still use the google apps though it's like they they just keep changing the contract on us uh, amazon also just had to pay out a lawsuit quite a bit of money for uh, ring sharing more than just what was authorized but sharing all kinds of videos almost uh, every week we see something that makes me shake my head and go this is why we got to self-host and this is why i think i'm getting more excited about home assistance year of the voice and the work they're doing over there uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of things they could be spending time and energy scaling out on. And I, I am the little bit of experimentation I've done. I'm really glad this is it because it's producing upstream projects that you can use for other stuff outside of Home Assistant as well. So it's like a double win. Well, it's not just Amazon that have been having a bit of a weird week with regards to doing DRM type stuff, I suppose, or having issues. The MB project had a, a hack this week. Uh, so if just just a public safety announcement, really, if you're running an MB server, make sure that you are up to date on your patches. There is a remote code execution vulnerability combined with a proxy header vulnerability uh, recently fixed in the beta channel. And this allowed an attacker to gain administrative access on such systems. Oh, not good, Alex. Not good at all. Good to know. Well, speaking of uh, cleaning things up and purging, I was kind of curious about your habits in terms of going through your file server and determining if it's time to clean things up and where you draw the line. And of course, I'd be curious to know where the audience draws their line. I was looking at the file server and I was getting down to a hundred gigs free. And that's kind of my red line, right? That's like, cause when you start getting low on space, it just becomes exponentially harder to migrate that data. It's always easier to do it before you run out of space. And so I started looking through there and I was using various command line tools because this is over an SSH connection to try to suss out what is the most large, like what are the largest files, what's the most like storage dedicated to. And one of the things I saw in there was my vlog source files. Cause you know, I did like 60 vlog episodes years ago on YouTube and uh, I kept all the source files because there's a lot of drone footage in there of our neighborhood and trips that we went on and locations all over the country. And Noah crushing it into a tree. Sure, yeah. And there's also probably clips of the kids being young and cute, just that kind of stuff. So I just decided to always keep it. 
but I've never once in years ever gone back to it and looked at it. So then I started looking at it and it's, you know, a couple of hundred gigs. Actually, I think it's like a terabyte worth of stuff. And it would be such a huge job to go through and extract those ginormous raw files anyways. And I have a lot of pictures from that time and era. Plus I have the produced videos. Like, where do you draw the line on what you're going to clear out? Or do you just always plan to add more storage? Because that's what I've been debating. Like, should I really add more storage? Or could I go through and delete these 16 movies I'm never, ever, ever going to actually watch? And all these source files for these projects that I was doing years ago, video projects I was doing years ago. I'm never going to reopen those projects. I probably will never go through the source footage, even though I know there's stuff in there. Or do you hold it all thinking like maybe one day some AI tool is going to come along, just scan it for you and categorize it for you and make it all retrievable? Like, I mean, I don't know. Like, what's your approach? Now, there's an angle I hadn't considered for AI. Let's go through all my thousands of hours of drone footage that I yeah. took when I first got my uh, my first drone. Wouldn't I mean, you know, as soon as you delete it, they're going to come out with some sort of project like that. That'll they'll go through and auto categorize, auto tag, auto locate. It's an interesting discussion, actually. And. I think it speaks to a strategy that I adopted. So my storage is kind of divided into two halves. I've got an ephemeral area, which is typically what I use MergerFS for. And that is often for stuff which has been acquired. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I don't know what you're talking about. is very easily replaceable, you know, so commercially produced stuff, right? You could go you could go buy that Blu-ray again and back it up again if you needed to. Yes, sir. I'm not talking about the drone footage of my trip to Croatia in 2016, for example, where I'm never going to be on that day again in history. And, you know, I think for me, anything that is completely irreplaceable, no matter how asinine it seems or how inconsequential it seems to you now, there may be some point in the future where you look back and think, oh, I wish I had the footage that I took in the car on the way from New York back to Washington when I went to the Ubuntu Summit, you know, eight years ago, whatever it was. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That I would have a bunch of footage from that trip to New York. Yeah, and also, you know, if you get 20, 30 years down the road, that drone footage is a time capsule of an area that won't look anything like that anymore. And, you know, I think of it like this. I put all of that data onto a, a ZFS mirror or a, an array of some kind. But in my case, I don't have more than, I've got a 14 terabyte ZFS mirror, which I then replicate to two different places. Um, one in the closet next to me up here. So main server's in the basement, backup server is up here. And then I have my old UK server, as you probably know if you've listened to the show for a while, where everything gets backed up backed up to again. But I, I look at these files, that I'm, I'm keeping them for myself, yes, on some level, because their memories, they are moments in history, moments in time. But I look at photo albums when I go to my parents' houses and I look back at my parents when they were younger and I see the way they look at each other, the clothes they're wearing, the vehicles they're driving, the locations they're at. And and you can kind of piece together from the stuff you hear about your parents talking about over the years. You can piece together bits of their history that they've never that they've either forgotten or just didn't have the time to tell you for whatever reason it might be. And so almost I feel like I'm keeping some of those more unique memories, not for me, but for kiddo when she gets a bit older. Mm. Yeah, I could definitely see that with the vlog too, because there's a lot of footage of them. 
and, you know, their home, their surroundings, all of that. The other aspect is maybe she'll get, you know, the inevitable hand-me-down photo album, look at it and go, what the hell is this? And and throw it in the bin. That seems equally as possible. But that's her decision. You know, at least she's then got the option. Yeah. So I decided to keep it for now. And I've gone through and just found other areas I can cut back. You know, one of the things that I discovered is when you have a lot of files, like Final Cut archives or a lot of media files or something like that, there aren't a lot of great command line tools to go through and analyze your usage and give you information quickly. I I love NCDU. Been using it for 200 years. Uh, I've been using it before your grandfather was born, but man, is it slow. I mean, so, so slow. To scan my file server here, it took 20 minutes. 200 years, huh? 200 years. Yeah, 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 yeah. Time traveler. Uh, so I went out and found a better tool. I found a better way. I believe it's a Rust app, too. It's called Dua, Disk Usage Analyzer. And it did the same exact scan, and I'm not even kidding, in 15 seconds. It was way better. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. Yeah, it's way better. Um, so it's called uh, Dua, the Disk Usage Analyzer, and it's a tool to conveniently learn about the usage of your disk space. And you can either just run it against a directory or you can put it in an interactive mode and browse around the file system and get like actual bar graphs and stuff of the usage. And it, it works just like you would expect from a tool like this. Quick, easy. If you just want a command line output, you can get that. Or if you want the interactive kind of end cursus style, of course, I was using this over an SSH connection. And then the other thing it touts, I can't really testify either way, uh, Your Honor, but the other thing that the uh, defendant claims is that also will delete faster than RM can delete large directories and large files. I will say they delete fast. I don't know if it deletes faster than RM, but it works. So I'm pleased with that. And I'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's a Rust tool, so it's available for Windows, Mac, and Linux. And if you want it on Linux, you can just like pull down the binary and just run it. It's also packaged up for a few distros. Shouldn't you be saving the Rust tools for Linux Unplugged with your week of <laughs> Rust that's going on? Dang it. Dang it. Well, yeah, I had to save the best one. This is really the best one of the bunch, I think. But, you know, just managing this problem uh, with my server, it's it does make me realize, like, there is a machine that has been missing from my life. And I have I have tried the Synologies. I have tried the QNAPs. I have, I have tried uh, using different NASes from, like, IX systems. I've tried intermediate boxes. And then I've also done, like, Unix Surplus and bought old... Um, big towers and converted those into NASs, which are really enterprise systems. And so uh, we had a chance this week to chat with two gentlemen, Doug and Mitch from 45 Drives, who you're about to meet. And 45 Drives is setting off to develop a quote-unquote home lab server that kind of sits in this area, that kind of bridges the gap between the enterprise gear and the consumer gear. You know, something that isn't $5,000, but something that isn't like eight $900, right? Something you could afford for your home lab, but it's a serious tool and something that obviously Alex and I would be very interested in. And so they joined us this week. Well, joining us on the show today, I'm really excited to welcome Doug and Mitch from 45 Drives. Doug is the president and co-founder and Mitch is the lead storage architect. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you very much. Yeah, my pleasure. Happy to be here. 
And we thought we'd talk to you today. We, I mean, I probably like most of our audience spend probably a bit too much time on Reddit. And uh, I saw your post recently about the upcoming home lab server that you guys are working on. Home labs. So for 45 drives and, you know, some of your audience may know us and those that don't, we make big, strong, fast storage server systems. We do single servers clustered, but it's professional market stuff. So it's, it's enterprise. The company's been a great run. Uh, we do things differently. We call it new enterprise that we do. It's open source, open platform, no vendor lock-in, just a whole different thing. You know, buy what you want, get the services you want. We have full service if you want it. But uh, we got a group of people who love computing and we love storage. We love big monster beasts, 19, 19-inch rack mount cabinets that you know weigh 140 pounds or something for our, you know, they're, they're fun to play with. We yeah, we got uh, computing in our blood, and uh, the home labs world has always been, you know, it, it's been exciting for us. And, uh, you know, a lot of us are involved in that ourselves. Uh, you know, Mitch is hugely, I'm not so much anymore. I'm just getting a little bit older and uh, to involve my entrepreneurship, but Mitch is is deeply into it. So we have a bunch of fans of the home labs world, and uh, but we've never really made a product for it. So that's, our, our heads have turned there. I've been familiar with your products for a very long time through various very famous YouTubers, the Storinators, all that kind of stuff. And I've drooled over your gear for many years. But, you know, the the price ranges of those products, they're not aimed at home users like me. So I am super duper excited that you guys are targeting this segment. Yeah, we, we've got a whole lot of fans that kind of have been homegrown over the years with uh, a lot of our YouTube campaigns with a lot of the influencers. And like, all the techies, all the people that work here that are on the tech side are like me. We're all deeply ingrained in this stuff. Like it's it's not just a job, it's our our life and our our really passion. Right. So I'm super excited about finally being able to to start to offer something that I would be able to afford, you know what I mean, normally uh, uh, for something like this. So yeah, it's it's huge for me for sure. And I, I'm uh, very excited to roll this out. So I've been wondering, I kind of get the sense that you might be closer to market than the post on Reddit one month ago kind of implies. You you were reaching out to the community and asking for input on what would be a great server that fits somewhere between the consumer NAS that you can buy, say, at Best Buy right now, and a massive multi-thousand dollar big enterprise system. And I don't know, I guess reading through this post, I kind of got the sense that you already have a system in mind you kind of have a, at least a target in mind. Can you share sort of what that vision is? Sort of. We do things very fast. Yeah, yeah. And so our development, yeah, will be really fast. We have a sister company called Protocase that's the fastest manufacturer in the world. Does uh, metal and like uh, surround electronics. Uh, we do, it does electromechanical assembly and the like too. So we have that there, and it's and it's lightning fast to do it. But you know, going to this market, we got to figure out exactly what we can build. If we use the analogy and, and say what we make in the professional and enterprise market is the let's see, it's an eighteen wheeler. So it's a, a big double trailer eighteen wheeler, and you got eight hundred horsepower turbo diesel and big stacks and incredible power to it. Great, but it's too expensive for home use and it won't fit in your driveway. <laughs> okay. And, and, and the other end of it, you know, we recognize that out there right now, if you just want NAS to put in on a home network, you know, and I say a home network, not home lab network, and you can go buy, I don't know, Synology or QNAP or something, whatever, you, you know, you, you know, get four bays for a couple hundred bucks a drive bay, 
an eight hundred dollar device, and they're they're good. But we'll call that the little the the, the small car, the micro car with a little utility trailer behind it. And then somewhere in the middle, there's something that probably looks like a heavy-duty pickup truck with a good-sized diesel in it and uh, extra strong suspension. So if I use that analogy, like we know where we want to go position-wise, and we went to Reddit, we're, we're going really, what exactly is that? And uh, you know, a bunch of questions because we, we all know, you know, you, you can get that, you know, stars in the eyes of both the 18 wheeler, and 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 it's too much. So so what is right? That really is our question. Once we get our hands uh, or you know, our minds wrapped around. Starting point, you know, there's going to be a line, and let's get our minds around the starting point. It will be pretty quick by the time we get there, but we're still trying to figure out exactly what it is. I see. So there must be some kind of target applications that you want to make it possible for the end user to run. There must be some sort of workloads that you're thinking of, and storage and applications are both part of that. Absolutely, absolutely. So we take a look at like what what I think the average home user would do or the home lab user would do. And then we were like, okay, let's take a look at these things, right? Like a lot of people will run a hypervisor or some sort of compute. A lot of people are running media servers. A lot of people are running things like NextCloud, VPNs, all those types of things, right? So we wanted to, rather than throw those out there though, we just wanted to say, hey, what, what are the top five, top 10 applications that you guys are interested in. And, you know, we really love the idea of having the ability of, you know, one click containers to, you know, deploy a Plex server or a VPN or something like that. But we also want to leave the, the wires hanging out, so to speak, for the more advanced users that really want to get underneath the hood and, and do some custom customizations on the Linux side. And, and that was a big part of when we developed Houston, which is our user interface or web user interface used to manage our storage servers. And that was a big part of that as well, is we want to make it easy and simple for a lot of our, our users and our customers that aren't highly technical Linux users, but they need to be able to do everything that a very highly technical user can do. And so anything that you do in the command line doesn't get overridden by the UI and vice versa. And so we want to take that same approach to the home lab market as well and have it best of both worlds for both types of users. And, and, and if I could add in that too, there, there's a fundamental thing, uh, you know, storage power. We take it for granted around here. We got our, you know, our, our group, the, the group that Mitch works in that does architecture configuration and service. And we get to move around massive amounts of data and get to move it very, very quickly. We love it. It's great. You, you put a, a huge machine together. You set up, uh, you know, you got a bunch of data in there in, in well-thought-out arrays with redundancy, but uh, parallelism in it. And, you know, and, and we, we help people, you know, do crazy transfer rates where we're getting, you know, five gigabytes per second flowing out of a single box. And, uh, you know, doing single client transfers, uh, you know, filling a 10 gigabit line and just the one transfer to one client. And it's fun and it's doable. Anybody who loves Linux, you know, we can teach people how to tune things up and, and do that kind of stuff. But, you know, question for us and what we do and what people are going to do with it is to what extent that heavy duty storage, you know, fun to play with. But, you know, do you have the network bandwidth and uh, do you have any place for it to go? And And we don't know because... You know, people do all kinds of things in the home lab world, right? It's, it's, it's such an interesting group of people. I love to hear it. And uh, it sounds to me like you're going after that kind of yummy middle where Unraid users meet Proxmox users meet maybe ESXi users. That kind of middle ground where if I wanted to build a server capable of hosting enough VMs to make it worth my while, so say I'm playing around with Kubernetes or something at home, I want to put 64, maybe 128 gig or more worth of RAM in there. A lot of, you know, consumer grade motherboards 
just can't handle that. And then I think to myself, well, it's a server. I need IPMI in there. Wouldn't it be great if I could just buy an off-the-shelf power supply as well? So, I mean, how are you guys thinking about the actual hardware that's going into this? Are you going to use commodity stuff or are you just providing a chassis? It, it You know what? It, it's price point, you know? It, it's like we can design whatever. And ideally, the idea of just having a chassis as a base and then putting out some options for, you know, if people want to put, you know, what will design to be compatible so you can put in a, a consumer grade power supply if you want or, or you know, and, and the option to put your own motherboard in. But we'll probably look at offering some professional, you know, grade, uh, you know, motherboards that have all the features on it, but it, you know, it comes down to price point and it's a, we're, we're a, a cost plus company, you know, and in the enterprise market, uh, you know, our, our systems sell for quite dramatically lower than the legacy enterprise vendors. Uh, you know, and it, it, we call it new enterprise, you know, we'll sell them the same thing. There, there's, there's no big value pricing and, and, and making a grab off it. Well, the, you know, in the, the market, it isn't there, but it, there's cost base in it, right? You want all the bells and whistles, well, the bells and whistles cost, and, and, and it's got to flow through. So what I'd really love to do, you know, look, what we do, here's the advantage we have as an organization. We are sort of on the cutting edge of low volume mass custom manufacturing, and we can customize things better than anybody can. And we're just going to really play with that and see what we can do in this market to see what we can do to get options out there. You know, and then the market will tell us, you know, we want these initial conversations. They're absolutely great to get us some starting points. And then you put stuff out there and you see where people want to go, right? And and what do they want to spend on, right? So anybody listening to this who hasn't seen the posts on Reddit or anywhere else you've you've posted, what's the best avenue for them to direct their feedback to you? Info at 45drives.com, I think for now, is something that people can reach out to today right now. Um, Something that we're working on right now in the background is bringing back the 45 Drives form. So we had a form uh, many years ago, uh, and it kind of went away in lieu of our our support page and the way we do support now. But we think that's really important to bring that back. So that is definitely going to be another big thing that's coming down the pipe very soon. And we're hoping that's going to be kind of homegrown and everyone kind of helps each other. But we're also going to have our own service team that is going to be manning it daily. And one thing just quickly, what I wanted to just jump back on, on, on kind of what 45 drives will be offering in the home app. You know, you look at what, what do we do right now with our storage servers that's unique. And I, I think of our density and also our PCB backplane and our no multiplexers. So our PCB backplane is really freaking cool. I love it. It's, it's a fantastic design that we've done. And the fact that we don't use any multiplexers. So I think those are going to be huge carryovers into the home lab. And I think it will be immensely important to have no motherboard as option as well. I was going to ask for those of us that aren't familiar with what a multiplexer is. So when you get into large storage servers, one of the things that we do very differently to make it economical to build a very large storage server, the, the, the Chinese made large storage servers, they'll plug hard drives together in five SATA drives. And typically they're on SATA. Well, everything's in SATA and port multiplication. So typically five drives will share one SATA part. When you do that, you end up really, you know, a, a spinner, you know, we kind of use uh, 200 megabits, megabytes per second as its throughput. So, you know, a couple gigabits per second. It doesn't take too many of them before you completely plug up a SATA port. The multiplexing yeah, <laughs> is, uh, yeah, two of them, in fact. Yeah, so you lose bandwidth on it. And it's also, it's a, it's a pain in the butt driver-wise. And you try to operate these things, you bump into driver problems, driver problems. So we did some, you know, we pioneered it uh, a number of years ago in large storage servers. We call it direct wired, you know, direct lane from 
hard drive through to your HBA adapter, which has the ability to handle the bandwidth of all these uh, all, all these drives. So so that's it. Yeah, multiplexing is you know multiplexing good if you want a uh, you know, large archival servers and you want to make them at the very lowest dollar. Mm-hmm. But it's it, it's not us. It's not big, fast, strong. So. so, what sort of form factors do you think in a rack mount thing or something that sits on a shelf or what? So the the feedback that we got back, and I think it's it's dead on, is we got back for you to you are, are kind of the the ones that we're shooting for right now, and then also it's going to be rack mount, but with the ability to to screw on some rubber feet and have something that's going to be pleasing to the eye that you can put on a desk and still be very nice and and look good, right? So I personally have a Stornator at home, one of our older versions. And I did something very similar to what you were talking about. Like I put a regular ATX power supply in it. I put a couple Hyper 212 Evil Cooler Master Coolers, some Noctua fans, and now it's very, very quiet and just sits right in my rack and is just like a beautiful server for me. I've had it running for a few years. So if we can translate that to the home lab, uh, that'd be fantastic. I love it. When you talk to a vendor like like you guys, who clearly is actually passionate about what they're talking about, and you jump in and say, oh, I had a Hyper 212 Evo cooler. Like, you obviously are not trying to BS us. You definitely are talking the talk and walking the walk. So what is the thing that's probably going to be the most challenging? We can build that 18-wheeler, that uh, you know Australian road train with three trailers, the biggest engine you ever had. We can build it. it, it it's, it's, it's finding what the market wants. You know, it's just a subtle matching between what the market wants and what makes sense for people, and price point, and and, and trying to find trying to find that. Because if we just go crazy and put out something that has, you know, every bell and whistle and full horsepower and full size, it ends up being a professional line, right? So we we got to figure out what works. The chassis is a great idea. We sell chassis, then people can let us know. We can watch what people are doing, getting feedback. What are they putting in for electronics? You know, what are they running on software-wise? Get a sense of that. We can tune into that. That's where we got to get to on it. it it's, it's knowing the market. And, and when it comes down to, as I said, the other end of it is a place that, you know, challenging. We just know you got to stay out of there. Look, we're North American design. We're more North American manufactured. And, and we do stuff and, you know, we mass custom manufacture it. If you want cheap, it's not us. We're, 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 we're not exotic price. We're, we're not a Maserati. But neither are we your, you know, your entry level automobile or whatever, right? It's not it. So we we talked about this the other day. You know, some of the big enterprise companies have to pay the state dinner bill, and they charge a lot for the service on the other end as a consequence. <laughs> yeah, you're yeah. paying for a triple, three times over on the back end. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love it. Yeah, that's an enterprise sales. You go to buy something, enterprise vendor. They take you to the best steakhouse in town, buy a steak dinner, and you know. Your organization's paying for it after they buy it from them. Yeah, in the long run. Yeah. Well, Doug, Mitch, this is right up our alley. We look forward to seeing what you guys develop. So keep us posted on how things go. Just let us know when something's developed and keep us in the loop, okay? I, I would love to come back on when we have a couple more uh, updates for us, maybe a month or two down the road and when we've, we got something a little closer. Yeah. Yeah, we're just into, you know, feedback, digesting it, uh, just uh, into our creative meetings on it right now to to... to see what we develop our, our, our development teams you know it's great fun for them it's really a fun project for us so yeah we would lo- love to share it our sense is it feels sort of like you guys are in the right direction sounds like you're building a product that alex and myself and a lot of our audience would probably be interested in so i'll buy it yeah <laughs> <laughs> we'll chat again soon i'll hold you to that <laughs> thanks for joining us guys thank you very much thank you thank you for having us 
We've got a lot of feedback over the last couple of weeks about Obsidian. A couple of choice quotes from various <laughs> listeners. Dimitri wrote in agreeing that Obsidian is truly the way, and he suggests sync thing for Android users. This is a popular one. Not a great option for iOS, I have to underscore. But if you got sync thing on your desktop or your server and you got sync thing on your Android device, you can basically use Obsidian Sync. Well, that that for sync. And multiple people wrote in and boosted in saying it works. I, of course, because I'm a glutton for punishment, I have my primary use case is the desktop. Then my next use case would be my Pizel 7 because I'm an Android user now. But in the garage, I have an iPad with a keyboard that I want to use for notes while I'm working out there. And so I have to be able to sync to iOS. So I did it, Alex. I, I bought Obsidian Sync. One of my favorite things and one of the things that really put me over, this is stupid. But when you told me that Obsidian Sync syncs themes and plugins and that they were per vault, I was in. Because then I could have vaults. So the wife and I are sharing a login. Sorry, Obsidian. And she just opens the vaults on her devices she cares about. And it works perfectly. And I have them like kind of more minimal plugins. I have a, you know, a nice theme for her. So far, that's working really, really well. I've I've also had to shift from like the Evernote philosophy of capture everything and then sort it out later to just with Obsidian. I think it works better if only capture the things you think you might need later and link to stuff. And it's just that's just a transition I have to make, but I think it's one I'm I'm going to get behind. It's really interesting for documentation though as well. Like if you I mean, I don't typically use the graph view for very much at all, but as I've been, you know, acquiring notes ahead of this track day I did at the weekend for the car, you know, what brake pads did I run? And then even whilst I was at the event, like what were my tire pressures after a certain session and just Oh, interesting, yeah. You'll forget. Yeah, you know, it's important to keep a record of that stuff like ambient temperature was this and so my tires came in at the end of this session at this temperature and with this pressure, et cetera. Like, normally that stuff would end up in a paper notebook and I'd have to physically go and get it and remember that it's linked in my mind to the car, for example. Right, but right. what I did was just quickly at the track, I just did a bracket, bracket, 2019 Golf R, and then that linked that back to the, the main page for the car. And then I have a data view query that looks at every note that has that phrase in it or that backlink in it. And then shows me, it's almost like a table of contents for the car. And then it goes to those sub notes underneath it. And that's that kind of wiki style functionality in plain text notes. I have no idea how they've done it, but it is absolute magic. <laughs> yep. The magic is in the linking. Uh, Lewis wrote in saying, well, he was perfectly happy with Joplin until the last episode of self-hosted. And now he's migrating to Obsidian. Yeah, we, ha we had that sentiment come in uh, across the various channels. Uh, I'm sorry about that. I hope you are suffering, and I hope it's going horribly for you, so that way you feel slightly, just a little tiny bit of the pain that I've had to feel for the last few weeks, and I hope you continue to endure it. No, not really. I, a little bit. It's, uh, it's, a good, it's a good project, I think. And I know at this point we probably sound like Obsidian Shills or whatever, but... There's, we've got no relationship to them. They're not even really technically a self-hosted app in the truest sense. They're not even really open source either. There's a bit of an awkward one to, to be talking about so much in the show. But I think from a data sovereignty point of view, 
that's where it absolutely wins out. And that's, that's, you know, always the balance we try and strike on this show is some kind of a pragmatic balance between the various principles and pillars of, of the different aspects of self-hosting. And for me, Obsidian really wins out because I own the data 100%. You know, they've got the local files on my, on my disk right now in front of me. I can open them in any editor I want, not just Obsidian. Yeah, for me, that was the, the deal breaker was I had to have the files offline. I wanted to have them locally in a standard format if I could, Markdown in this case. And that's the way exactly that their sync tool works is it, it syncs the files to uh, your local file system. And the fact that you can put something like sync thing in the back end or Git or something else uh, to move those files if you'd like, I think gives me the option to say, well, okay, I'm done with the sync thing service. Thanks so much. See you later. I'll, I'll do another way one day if I want. So I was okay with it. Have you tried mixing and matching sync services yet? I mean, I know the Obsidian sync service works across all platforms, but, you know, it's almost like a insurance policy. Like I was initially trying to do it over Nextcloud, but then couldn't get real-time syncing to mobile, which really kind of sealed the deal because the wife needs the full mobile experience, Alex. You know what I mean? Did your iPhone turn back on yet? Yeah, it did actually. After it sat for a couple of days, I think it fully drained itself. And then I plugged it in again and it, it booted up, you know, I had to do the full charge. So I think maybe it was like locked up and it just wouldn't go anywhere until the phone died. But I tried plugging that sucker into a Mac. I tried plugging it into the wall outlet, all the things, you know, I tried all the track. I tried holding all the buttons you're supposed to hold. I did the whole dance. I feel like Apple's on a weird trajectory at the minute. Do you feel this too? In, was it Ventura, the latest macOS? This is going to be a complete tangent from the uh, the dock, by the way. But have you ever tried to set a static IP on the new version of macOS? No, I don't think so. It's it's an absolute <laughs> show. It's, it's, <laughs> it just doesn't do it. So like a, cu- a couple of months ago when I was doing all the networking stuff, well, we never talked about this in the show, but I was trying my damnedest to set a static IP because I, I knew what the, the IP address of a certain thing was on the network. The DHCP server was down. I'm like, right, if I give my laptop a static IP, I can get into OpenSense and turn the DHCP server back on again and everything will be fine. But the new Mac OS, nope, you cannot manually do that. No. Under certain circumstances, which includes no internet. No way, dude. No way. No way. You're telling me. No way. You're telling me when Mac OS doesn't have an internet connection, it doesn't let you set a manual IP? No way. It's a feature now in, in Ventura that, uh, was it 11 point, God, I don't even know what version numbers That's are blowing now. my mind. 13 point, I'm on 13.4 over here. Yep. It's frustrating as all hell. Well, at least the machines are $6,000 when you properly spec them. Well, it makes that framework that we talked about in the post show <laughs> last week uh, yeah. look smarter and smarter, doesn't it? Oh, I cancelled my pre-order for the uh, AMD one, by the way, because we talked in the post show last week about QuickSync and how if I'm going to use it as a server. One day you might. And the Thunderbolt stuff. Yeah, so I've, I've gone for the pre-order for the um, i5 framework, which will also be here in a month or two, hopefully, not six. Mm, yeah, that's also nice. I'm still hopeful that uh, that the Asahi project gets a really, really competent, headless Linux server setup. So that way I can just use like an M1 Mac mini as a, as a home server or something. That's what my hope is. I hope so too, but let's be honest, you're dreaming, lad. You're dreaming. <laughs> I'm dreaming about a Hunnigan who boosted in with 40,000 sats. Just says, great show. Thank you, Hunnigan, for sending in some value. Active Shadow came in with 30,000 sats. 
uh, sending in from Fountain, just say, I wanted to say thanks for the show. I was curious if either of you have ever used the VS Code dev containers. I live by them. They keep my base Arch Linux with Hyperland install clean. It allows different versions of languages for different projects and makes sharing the development environment easy. That's a really great idea. I don't, but I do use uh, the VS Code web server. I'm sure you must use that too, Alex. Yeah, I do love the uh, VS Code in a in a in a container. I actually use the heck out of it in Home Assistant. It's kind of built in as one of the plugins. Uh, I use the heck out of that over there. But um, I don't know if you remember we talked about that. I went to All Things Open in October, and I went to a talk by a chap called Scott Hanselman, who is a developer. I think a developer advocate over at Microsoft. If you've never heard Scott talk, by the way, and you see him on a conference schedule, ignore all the other sessions that are clashing with him. He is one of the most engaging speakers you will ever have the pleasure of going to to listen to. But he gave a presentation about uh, VS Code and, and the dev containers that were in there. I remember at the time thinking, yeah, these look amazing. Why aren't I using these? And then got home and, I don't know, had to give Archie some scritches and forgot about it. Uh, so thank you very much for writing in. I will put this at the top of my list and, and give it another look. It does look really fantastic. I was just looking it up while you while you were talking, and it does look great. Kyocera comes in with uh, a row of McDucks, 22,222 sats. Chris asks about something like uh, Fasten and would it work without insurance? We were talking about that tool that lets you connect to your medical records. Mm-hmm. Easy. The insurance provider isn't responsible for the health records. The doctor's office is. Uh, says that's why it's huge. And Apple Health doing this was also massive. And the idea being that you could electronically connect in over an API, get your medical records and store them yourself and then just have them next time you go to a doctor or a specialist. What a concept. What an idea. When I read this uh, this boost in the doc, I actually went and looked on my iPhone and looked in the health app. And it turns out I can also connect the Apple Health app into, I think it's the MyChart system that my my. Uh, doctor's office uses and it, it works just as well as fasten except i i assume the data is stored somewhere on apple's servers as well as my iphone i i don't know i think it is stored locally in your health app but i think they encrypt it in the backup to icloud like you could maybe open up the health app on another icloud connected device and find out mm, that's a good point maybe i should that's interesting okay i didn't know you could do that with i i, I do remember something about being able to pull in records but I, I never really know how much to trust the Apple Health app, but I've never heard of anything leaking from it. It's quite nice. Like, it, you know, the blood test I talked about in the last episode, it showed me all the different, you know, ranges of things that I'm fine for and a couple of things I need to work on and that kind of stuff, you know. It pulled that data into the app and visualized it? In in the Apple Health app, yeah. As well as, well as Fasten too. Fasten did it as well. It was great. <sighs> that's cool. That's useful. And if it truly is private, that's that's really great. Legit Salvage comes in with 10,000 sats. Uh, Hearing you talk about your notes made me think, are you talking about notes and document management as the same thing? Do you distinguish the two? Since I haven't found any open source solutions yet, I don't have a good comparison. Closest I would think with the Microsoft world would be like using OneNote for notes versus SharePoint. OneNote would be more creating data like grocery lists, you know, things like jotting down phone numbers, other things. And SharePoint would be the finished searchable product, scan, mail, receipts, warranties, documents. I currently use the Notes app in NextCloud. It works, but I'm not satisfied. I'm also searching for the SharePoint replacement out there. I want to pick up a nice document scanner to scan every piece of paper in my home and any documents going forward and make it searchable. 
something like paperless nginx perhaps i haven't tried it yet what are your thoughts well i've tried both of them a couple of years ago was it last summer we went back to england for my sister's wedding and my wife is a music teacher she teaches uh, piano clarinet that kind of thing over the internet and on zoom to some people and some some people come to our house and that kind of thing and she wanted to scan in the sheet music and have it searchable with uh, OCR, for example, for various different pieces of music, rather than carrying 25 piano books across across the ocean. Yeah. <laughs> and we use Paperless really heavily for that. And I think she still uses it for, for those particular books. But there's no reason why. I mean, OCR is OCR is OCR, really. I mean, it, it, there are different qualities of, of recognition, I suppose, but... Uh, it's really up to you how you divide these things up. I mean, the, the context switching of documents versus notes, that, that line is a grey one and really only you can draw it. And it it depends whether you want to have everything in one place or have, like you say, bills and receipts and that kind of stuff in one place. And then your, well, like I talked about like tire pressures and stuff, you know, that kind of, you know, in the moment notes information somewhere else. It's 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 your knowledge base. It's up to you, I guess, how you draw the lines in it. Been thinking about the same kind of questions. I'd love to know your thoughts. Anyone out there listening or legit salvage, which you come to, it is useful to have all that stuff. And as somebody who pictures themselves on the road for multiple months at a time, you want to have a system for inbound mail and scanning it. And you don't want to carry all that around. So I'm always interested in people's thoughts there. I want to say thank you, everybody who boosted. We do that. We do the top four boosts on the show. Uh, Todd from Northern Virginia also came in with a row of McDucks, but didn't have a message. But just want to give him a shout out and thank you, everybody else who boosted. And we do read them. There are some great ones in there. And Gene Beans gave me some tools to check out, a few things to look at. So thank you, everybody. If you'd like to boost in the show, I say go get Albie. GetAlby.com. Top it off with some Loom Sats and then head over to the podcast index. We have it all linked in the show notes. You can just boost right there from the website. So if you want to find out more about the various different places I'm online, you can go to blog.ktz.me and go to the About Me page. All my YouTube, Twitter, all that kind of stuff is linked over there. Uh, if you want to write into the show, you can go to selfhosted.show slash contact. Don't forget to let the 45 Drives guys know your feedback on their project as well. I think they said info at 45 Drives. Yeah, and show notes at selfhosted.show slash 98. Thanks for joining us. So tell us about your weekend. I know it was very exciting. I saw some Twitter pictures. It was a proper bucket list weekend, Chris. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> That's a great way to put it. I finally, finally, finally took the golf on a proper racetrack. After working on it to make sure it was up to spec, making sure you had good brakes. Mm-hmm. I did what was called a high performance driver's education event, HPDE. <laughs> And this is a, it's a pretty serious affair, actually. Like you've got to follow lots of rules and have certain safety equipment and pass a pre-tech inspection and then pass an on-the-day tech inspection, you know, stuff like certain amount of tread on your tires and certain amount of meat on your brake pads. And basically, they're just trying to save you from yourself from taking a completely unsafe car out on a track. <laughs> Were you nervous, though? I was, you know, you've, you've paid a several hundred dollars to register for the event and you think, well, they're not going to let me actually go on track, are they? And then you think they're going to find some mistake here. You know, I've had to buy a special helmet and I bought, I bought driving gloves, Chris. Oh, bought driving gloves. Did, are they nice? Do they make, does it, do they make a difference? Yes, I, I think so. I mean, when, when you're driving at speed, it's, you're working pretty hard. Yeah. Getting sweaty. Yeah. And a leather steering wheel and sweat is yeah. probably not a good combo, you know? Yep. 
So that was kind of what I was thinking about that. But uh, so I went to Virginia International Raceway. I took the Golf R up there. It's a stock car except for a software tune on it. So I've got an EQT Stage 1, they call it in the VW community, Stage 1 software tune. And so the car from the factory makes something like 285 horsepower. With the tune, it's making around about, this is just a guess, but around about from the numbers on their website, about 350. That's a great increase. Just from software. You're going to blow that thing up in no time. <laughs> You'd think so, wouldn't you? You'd think so. But, uh, you know, on the Saturday I went out, so I was in the novice, the green group, which okay. is uh, mandatory instructors. So there's all sorts of rules. You've got, to, you've got to learn your flags so that when the marshals are corner workers, as they call them in America, are waving the flags at you, the yellow flag caution as someone spun on track in front of you or there is a goose in the middle of the road or something, which did happen, by the way. <laughs> a goose? There was a goose in the middle of the track. A Mustang <laughs> swerved to what? avoid it and went into the barriers right, and ended the session. I thought when you say there's a goose on the road, I'm thinking like that's like a a term for an idiot that doesn't know what they're doing and like they're, they're, no, they're like fishtailing nope. or something. An actual Canada goose <laughs> uh, <laughs> in the Brent. middle of a racetrack. That's definitely Brent's fault. Yeah. Well, I mean, there are different schools of thought. Some people think R should swerve, but then my instructor was like, that goose has had its chance, man. Like just, just hit the damn thing. If, if it means you're going to crash, just hit the goose, you know, it will do less damage. <laughs> so I, I had across, across the two days I had, eight 25 minute sessions on track. Each of them was instructed. And at the end of the weekend, you get an evaluation form that you fill out about your instructor and they fill one out about you as well. So they have different scores and there's mm -hmm. different categories. So there's the green group for the, the, the newbies like me. And then there's a yellow group, which is the first group of solo. So you're allowed out in yellow without an instructor, but only once you've been for a check ride and done a handful of events and they've signed you off that you're safe and you're, you're not going to be you know, doing 40 miles an hour in the middle of a 130 mile an hour braking <laughs> zone, for example, you know, because the, the whole point of a racetrack is that you're some places you're on the edge of control and the edge of ability. So if you're driving super slowly or you're just not aware of your surroundings, it's um, a hazard. No, yeah. no bueno. Dangerous. And so over the weekend, my, I started off, the Saturday was dry and uh, I was doing I think my fastest lap time was like a two minute 32 in the dry. There was a guy with a GTI who'd done a bunch of work to it and tuned it a little bit. And uh, he was doing two minutes, what was it? Two minute 12s or something. So I was about 20 seconds off the pace okay. on the first day. Uh, the next day though was wet, like properly wet. Like all of the rear wheel drive guys just went home. That's how wet it was. <laughs> you know, they've, they've paid like 300 bucks a day to be on track and they just like, nope, I'm going home. Apart from the Mustang that span and hit the barrier in front of us. He did not have a good day. <laughs> he wishes he would have just gone home. Yeah, he I just think spent so. a lot more money. <laughs> the GT500 Mustang, by the way. So a $100,000 car. Can you even imagine tearing the front end off that thing? And then and how much it's going to be just to fix the front end? Yeah. Tens yeah. and tens of thousands of dollars. I mean, I did buy track day insurance from a company called Lockton and uh, you pay something like a 10% deductible if you need to claim on it. So for me, I would have, I would have only been out of pocket something like four grand if I'd thrown it into a wall or something. But I mean, that guy is out of pocket 10K, which is not a rounding error. You know, it's a decent amount of change. Oh, you know? for sure. Oh, his wheel's all screwed up too. Look how screwed up his wheel is, which means that whole mount's all screwed up. His brakes are all screwed up. He smashed his wheel. It's, his wheel is 
oblong. <laughs> you know what stinks about that though is is that particular Mustang crash that you're showing on the stream right now was on the outlap. And what had happened was there was a guy in an M4 in front of him mm-hmm. who I'd been chatting to in the paddock. And this Mustang was behind him. And he he noticed the Mustang behind him thought, right, last session, this guy was a bit of an ass and was really aggressive trying to pass me. So I'm just going to let him go now. And so he gave him the point to pass. And the Mustang got all excited, put his foot to the floor, ass, apparently. <laughs> started fishtailing because it had just rained like five minutes before the session. You're not supposed to pass in a green group on the opening lap, by the way. You're supposed to bring everything up to temperature first, and then you can start to have fun, right? Man, imagine having a $100,000 car and not knowing how to drive it. Evidenced there. Mustang people. I wonder, was that his first? I don't know. I didn't talk, I didn't talk to the guy. But Could you, I mean, when you got a car like that and you put the foot down and it's rear-wheel drive in the rain, what do you think is going to happen? Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Jesus, that's got, I bet you that's a twenty, thirty thousand $30,000 mistake on a $100,000 car. His only saving grace is that it's a Ford and not something that has just these absolutely crazy, crazy, crazy body part costs. Yeah. Well, it was a GT Shelby Cobra Mustang. Oh, oh yeah. So, so probably like a thousand horsepower. <laughs> yeah. Approaching, approaching that. <laughs> yeah. It's a serious boy. Yeah. But I would highly recommend it. I mean, it, it was something I mean, I've been wanting to do this for basically forever i rate my skill level before this weekend as playstation grade like i've i've played hours and hours of simulator time but nothing compares you for being on a real track with the sights the sounds the smells the elevation changes like when your stomach goes as you're going through it there's a there's a section at vir virginia international raceway called roller coaster uh, you can probably imagine as you go down it's it's not quite like the corkscrew at laguna or anything but um it's certainly a good, certainly a good track. It must be one of the best tracks in the world, I would say. Wow! In the dry, I got up to over 130 miles an hour on the back straight. In the wet, the fastest I went was 126, I think. In in the wet, so on day two, my times improved so much. It was it was actually ridiculous as I started to feel the limits of the grip and the car and everything. I started off at well over three minutes, and by the end of the day, I was at two minutes 45. Wow. And and then you just drive it home like it's a like it's a streetcar, you know, just a regular old. That's the thing about the golf, dude. It is I know. just an incredible machine. 